Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ranking of the Stars. You're back. A podcast in which I, Jack Bobolik, and my lovely, luscious, last episode stole my job wife. <laughs> Hi, I'm Emily Bobolik. Watch in chronological order every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture. And not only watch them, but rank them according to however we feel at the time. And today's movie is... Going My Way. Going my way. Hey. Let's start with the poster. Best poster we've had in quite a long while. Are you kidding me? It's better than just heads. They did something. They tried something, but it in no way represents what this movie is about. I don't know who the hell this lady is. Is that Carol? I. It's either Carol or it's the, the opera singer on the poster with him, but... This little curmudgeon in the corner. I guess the lady in the dress is Jenny. No, it doesn't. Nobody on this poster looks like they do in the movie. The no, Father, mm. Father Fitzgibbon looks like he does in the movie, but yeah. he's very small. Well, he's very small in the movie too. He's very small in the movie too. Yeah. So for context, it says "Going My Way" in uh, big red letters at the top. Then we see a priest and a woman wearing a red. And then there's... They're little, holding hands. They're holding hands. Well, yeah, which doesn't fit. There, Yeah, there's no romance in this movie. No. Um, there's hints at a romantic past, but there's no romance nope. per se. Um, yeah, it's... I can agree that it's better in the sense that they try to do something. But in terms of selling the movie, that doesn't do it for me. Oh, yeah, it's complete... No, it's operating in a separate reality from the movie, but a lot of those posters have been. Yeah, this poster's a mess, but at least they tried. At least they tried. Yeah. Characters and actors. Let's do it. All right. The male protagonist in this movie is played by Bing Crosby, who plays Father Charles or Chuck O'Malley. I just refer to him as Chuck. Chuck, yeah, because that's yep. what he uh, introduces himself as. Uh, Bing Crosby's real name was Harry Lillis Crosby Jr. And it's unrelated to the movie, but Bing Crosby has not one, not two, but three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. One for radio, one for recording, and one for motion pictures. Seems like you were record for both of those other categories, for radio and for, or by record, do they mean music recordings? Yes. Okay. Weird yeah. distinction. Music recording, because he, and I believe it's 1941, he had his like one real big hit song with White Christmas. Hmm. So, and then he did a bunch of work in radio, so he's got three different they stars. They certainly make use of his musical talents in this movie. Yes, absolutely. Then we have Barry Fitzgerald, who plays Father Fitzgibbon. A returning actor. Yes, I can't remember where we saw him, though. He was in How Green Was My Valley. He was the, the boxing manager. Yes. The man who put all the beer in his hat. Yes, yes, yes. Then we have Frank McHugh, who plays Father Timothy O'Dowd. Gene Lockhart plays the banker Ted Hines Sr. And then James Brown 
plays his son, Ted Hines Jr. Yeah, a father and son business deal, very reminiscent of uh, You Can't Take It With You, yes. the Kirby's. The son reminded me especially of of the Kirby son. They're even the same body types with yeah. the, the dad being uh, short and stout and the son being tall and skinny. Exactly. Exactly. We have Jean Heather who plays Carol James. She's a young woman who fled her uh, parents' house. Eileen Malion plays Mrs. Carmody. She's the priest's servant and slash housekeeper. I just refer to her as the maid. The maid. The elderly <laughs> yeah. maid. And uh, Robert, there's, okay, there's a whole choir in this movie, and it was actually played by a real choir, and that was called Robert Mitchell Boy Choir. <laughs> and then the last person to mention is Rize Stevens. She plays. She has given two names that I found, uh, either Jenny Tuffle or Genevieve Linden, and she's an opera singer. Yeah, when they first meet, she said that she changed her name. Ah, and says I didn't one. catch that when we when we watched it. Is she actually singing? Is she an actual opera singer? Because it seemed like she yes. might have been lip syncing. No, that was in my fun facts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, she was an actual opera singer. Alrighty. All right. Information about the movie. It was written, directed, and produced by Leo McCary. It was distributed by Paramount Pictures. The premiere happened in New York on May 3rd, 1944, but the official release date was on August 16th, 1944. And for some reason, this movie is on a list of Christmas movies. Which I, I can understand that in the sense that it's it's a very feel good movie and that might be a, a movie you might want to watch at Christmas, but I don't. There's nothing Christmassy about it. It's snowing at the end. <laughs> right. <laughs> so snow is the only element that that qualifies it for uh, Christmas yep, category. Good enough. Good enough to qualify it. The skating by on a technicality. <laughs> the running time is 126 minutes. And I didn't find information about the budget, but the movie made $6.5 million. Yeesh. Yeah, that's more than it deserved to make. Yep. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay, some fun facts. It was the highest grossing movie of the year. There was a sequel to the movie. Oh, no. The very next year. I'm curious to see. I haven't checked the best picture uh, nominees for the year after, but I'm curious to see now if it was nominated. The sequel is entitled The Bells of St. Mary. Crosby got nominated for Best Actor for both movies, actually, and he's apparently one of six actors in history to have been nominated twice for the, for playing the same role. I didn't look uh, look up the list, but that's something to to do i bet some of the actors from the godfather movies probably yeah most definitely yeah most definitely apparently after world war ii bing crosby and the director leo mccary went to the vatican and met pope pius 12 and they gave him a copy of the movie oh jesus <laughs> yeah exactly this, yeah this is the kind of movie a, a pope would watch <laughs> yeah 
they got to give him the the copy of the movie and uh watch the movie with him so far for rooney um my thoughts exactly we're making to that piece of fun, uh, fun fact. Rizé Stevens, who plays an opera singer in the movie, also plays Carmen in the movie, the, uh, the musical uh, Carmen. And a few years later, in 1951, she was actually Carmen in the Mets production of the musical. This was her audition tape. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. She, I read that she was called uh, the Carmen of her generation. Uh, the movie was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Cinematography in Black and White and Best Film Editing. It won seven Academy Awards for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Bing Crosby, Best Supporting Actor for Barry Fitzgerald, Best Screenplay, Best Original Motion Picture Story, and Best Song for Swinging on a Star. They call that song the mule in the movie. Yes. That's what I couldn't remember which one it was. I swinging on a star. I couldn't remember which one it was. And there's a, a weird fun fact here is that uh, Barry Fitzgerald was actually nominated in the in two categories here. He was nominated for best actor and best supporting actor and won best supporting actor. So rules were changed after that year so that it, it would not be possible again for an actor to be nominated in both categories. Yeah, seems odd. The movie was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress in 2004. So 60 years later? Yeah. <laughs> they said, all right, fine. Fine. We've saved everything else. <laughs> all the other animals on the boat you can get on, I guess. And there are uh, three songs in this movie that were released on CD. Swing on a Star was actually at the top of the Billboard charts for nine weeks. Uh, it was I, in the charts for 28 weeks, but it was at the top for nine weeks. I mean, it's the best song in this movie, but... I guess. There's also an Irish lullaby uh, that was uh, in the charts for 12 weeks and reached an all-time high at number four. And then we also have The Day After Forever and Going My Way that were in the Billboard charts for a little bit that year. Ugh. Yeah. And let's look at the loser's bracket for that year. The other movies nominated for Best Picture were Double Indemnity, Gaslight, Since You Went Away, and Wilson. Wilson! Prequel to Castaway. All right. I have no idea what the other. I've heard double are. indemnity before, and I swear we've seen it on some of those uh, best movie of all time lists. I think so. I think so. I've just never, never watched the movie or don't know who's in it. You know what we haven't seen? Going my way. <laughs> I. It's weird. It's the first movie that we're recording about that we have. We watched it not so long ago, but I've. It's already escaped my memory for it's probably because nothing happens in it <laughs> all right let's not spoil our opinions <laughs> too much <laughs> and with that time for a synopsis all righty back in the saddle and get the rust off title card with painted background and angelic choir singing it's just this really basic picture of like a, a hill and a road in mm -hmm. the sky nothing too fancy then the opening shot of a large Catholic church in New York sandwiched between two apartment buildings. 
A close-up of the cornerstone lets us know that it is the Church of St. Dominic, established in the year of our Lord M-D-C-C-C-X-C-V-I-I. Got it good. Uh, We then transition to the office of the priest who runs the church, Father Fitzgibbon, who is trying to convince the businessman who holds the church's mortgage that they need a new furnace installed. This is the man who looks like Mr. Kirby. Yeah, Ted Hines. Oh, before you continue, this was actually not not shot in New York. It was all shot in California. So the church that they're using for St. Dominic's is, uh, I believe, in Santa Monica. Huh. Still there? I believe so. Uh, He needs a new furnace installed because four of the flock caught pneumonia last November and the Lord himself had icicles in his beard. The businessman's son thinks that they should do it, but the businessman himself is not having it. The church has missed the last five payments on the mortgage, and if they miss another, they'll be forced to take action. The businessman and his son leave, and outside the son stops his father and tells him that you can't go through with this. He's done some research, and there's never been a Catholic church foreclosure in the history of New York. Uh, Never lend money to a church, is the father's reply. As soon as you close in on them, everyone thinks you're a heel. The son pauses for a beat and asks, well, aren't you? Yes, replies the businessman. Yeah, my thoughts when he was saying, oh, never lend money to a church, and I was like, well, why did you do it? Because clearly you don't think that it was a good idea, and, and it probably wasn't, so... I really, I would have wanted to know what was his, um, his motivation in the first place. When he was younger and more foolish and didn't know as much about business. I guess. Interesting to just accept the fact that he's a piece of shit and then <laughs> they walk out of frame <laughs> and the scene ends. Then we see a middle-aged woman sitting on the sill of her second story window so she can clean the outside of it. And, uh. Much younger priest than the first one we saw, wearing a straw hat, calls from below, asking if she knows the way to St. Dominic's, because he's going to work there. He looks a lot like Ray Bulger, and he's wearing this, like, kind of Coney Island straw hat, where he looks like a carnival barker, and got these big, shiny eyes where he looks like he's about to break into song at any given second. Yes. I was wondering who he was reminding me of, and thank you. Yeah, the Scarecrow. Yes. The woman is incensed that he doesn't know the way and asks him his name. Chuck O'Malley, he says. What's yours? At that point, some other women in nearby windows join in and tell him that her name is Hattie Quimp and give Chuck directions to the church after poking some fun at Quimp, who says they're all a bunch of perverts and communists and bangs her head on the window as she goes back inside. She is the town busybody. Yeah. She is the, uh, the pearl clutcher that we always have to have. Well, she doesn't make too many appearances in this movie, so... No, but every time she does, she's complaining and (laughs) sticking her nose in everyone else's business. Yeah. On his way to the church, Chuck comes across a group of kids playing baseball in the street, and he takes the place of one of the outfielders while they run inside to get something. He's he's just walking by, hey, how's it going, kids? It's awful, take my place. And they're just playing baseball in the middle of the road, because... 1940s New York and you get away with having street ball Uh, on the very next pitch the ball is hit into the window of a nearby house and all the kids cheese it leaving Chuck to deal with the angry tenant and then this is a scene that establishes the fact that every interaction in this movie is going to just drag on for way too long because he has this 
incredibly drawn out, boring argument with this guy about, oh, I'm sorry, and oh, you should be ashamed of yourself, uh, taking part in these children's games and setting a bad example, and well, I'll pay for the win. No, I don't want you to pay for the win. And they just go on like this for fucking forever. Yeah. And it's awful. Uh, Finally, Chuck offers to give him his like pearl rosary mm-hmm. to pay for the damages but the guy doesn't want the rosary and he says he's an atheist and then uh he throws the ball back out into the street and we get a close-up of chuck's face and he says oh you even throw like an atheist <laughs> also setting the tone for the god-awful sense of humor this movie has uh, the tenant ultimately throws the ball back in the street where it rolls under a truck and as chuck bends down to pick up the ball uh, truck spring water passes by soaking Chuck. I guess they just needed to water the roads back in those days. Fade to the office of Father Fitzgibbons, who asks the maid who's taking his tray of food away if the new young father has arrived yet. He has, but wanted to change his clothes before introducing himself. Fitzgibbons says it's good he wants to look his best, just as Chuck enters wearing a baggy gray sweatsuit with St. Louis Brown in all capital letters on the front. <laughs> Fitzgibbons raises his eyebrows and says it can't be true. He knows the bishop doesn't like him, but even he wouldn't do something like this to him. Yeah, that's a, another catchphrase that comes back during the movie. Yep, surely not even the bishop. Chuck says that something happened to him on his way over, and would it be alright if he smokes a pipe? Fitzgibbons nods, and Chuck goes to strike a match on the bottom of his foot, thinks better of it, uh, then leans down to strike it on Fitzgibbons' desk instead, is rebuked with a sharp grunt, and then given a small metal stand to strike it on that he immediately knocks over on his first try. Young man, says Fitzgibbons, what made you become a priest? Before Chuck can answer, the phone rings, and it's Mrs. Quimp tattling on Chuck, breaking the window. Fitzgibbons finishes the call and tells Chuck he's off to a very bad start. He's also, like, fidgeting this whole time they're talking. He puts his hands in his pockets, and then Fitzgibbons scowls, and he takes his hands back out of his pockets. But he clearly doesn't know what to do with them. Yeah. I already expected that we would get the answer to that question that he asked. Him, like, how did you become a priest? Or why did you, why did you become a priest? I really wanted to know what the answer is going to be, but... It comes back a couple times. He also asked that same question to Father O'Dowd, and neither of them really answer. Yep. And he's right. He's making a, an awful impression here, and he's he doesn't seem to care either. He's just clumsy, and he's not uh, really explaining the situation. He just comes in with this lazy smile, and he's like, yeah, here I am. <laughs> Deal with it. Yeah, but inherently, he's not a bad person. No, he's not a bad person. He's just not putting any effort at all. Yeah into being contrite or uh, dressing appropriately or acting appropriately. Like, hey, father, can I smoke a pipe? Well, I mean, what is it to be dressed appropriately? If you're in church? In church. You're, to be in church clothes. It's a disguise. It's a it's literally a costume. And you're dressing up just to go to church. It's... God, d- God, God says black ties only. Well, that's just, yeah, that's just costume play. So you can do the Lord's work in whatever clothes you're wearing. He starts to ask him a second time why he became a priest, but the phone cuts him off again, and this time it's for Chuck. It's an old college friend of Chuck's who also became a priest, and they start to loudly sing their school song together. Yeah, they're all my matter. 
His friend then asks how the new assignment is going, and Chucks responds that it's too soon to say, but he'll let him know when they see each other in person. They say their goodbyes, and Chuck suggests that Fitzgibbon show him around the church. I should say that Fitzgibbons is a much older priest. Oh, yeah. He's old and uh, small and, like, hunched over. A little uh, gremlin of a man. He looks like he could be in his, what, mid-70s? Yeah, early 70s, late 60s. Yeah. In the courtyard in the back of the church, the pair of men approach the three-tiered bird fountains, uh, bird bath slash fountain in the center of the yard, and Chuck asks Father Fitzgibbons how long he's been at this church. Forty-five years, says Fitzgibbons. Forty-six in October. Jesus. The church has been the same the whole time since he built it himself. He's especially put a lot of effort into this garden and finds it a very pleasant place to meditate. Uh, you do meditate, don't you? Sure, says Chuck, which is an odd thing to to be hung up on since meditation is a more Eastern practice, I thought. Uh, yeah, I thought so too. Chuck also has the, the three wise monkeys on the back of his sweatsuit, uh-huh. which is also an Eastern thing. Yes. And as he's walking out of the office... I don't know. Father Fitzgibbons pauses for like a split second, but I don't know if it's because of the monkeys or not. I thought it was because of the monkeys. Yeah, another. Oh, but then if he disapproves of the monkeys, why is he talking about meditation here? I don't. What what is and is not acceptable back in these times? I don't know. I also thought, speaking of the garden, when he says, you know, he put an awful lot of work uh, into this garden, like it looks abandoned to me. It looks like. There's branches and leaves and just, it looks, it looks like a mess. It doesn't look like a place where if I were the kind of person who meditates, I would not be able to meditate there because it would be more stressful than anything else because of how cluttered it is. Not neat and tidy. Yes. Now, Fitzgibbons then directs Chuck to the main church building, but Chuck takes a detour because he thought he saw a four-leaf clover, and he has to jump over a bush to get back to Fitzgibbons. Remember the scene? It's very important. Yeah. Inside the church, Chuck says a quick prayer, lights some candles, and the two men shake hands, and there's a weird statue of Jesus in the front yes. of the altar because it's Jesus holding a baby, and anytime there's a baby in, in church you know uh, paintings or statues it's usually jesus so it's a statue of jesus holding himself i guess yeah it looks like the i think it's the madonna and child i think or um the the the, the big like... the big person has a beard it's not mary i know no, no i know i know but it's it feels like it's a replica it's a it's modeled after an old statue that's i think called madonna and child yeah it sh- yeah it should be mary but it's jesus yes. so he's just holding himself whatever the next morning, Fitzgibbons sees the maid in the courtyard carrying a tennis racket, golf clubs, and some fishing poles. She tells him that it's Chuck's luggage and that Chuck already left on an errand. Chuck soon returns, though, carrying a large basket that contains a gift he was given while making parish calls. Fitzgibbons is excited because he thinks it's food, but it turns out to be a, punch, a bunch of puppies that we never, ever see again after this. Those puppies are so cute, though. Yep. And Fitzgibbons makes some comments about, oh, they're too young to be separated from their mother. And Chuck says, you're right. So here's the mother. (laughs) And she's in the basket, too. And also, uh, Fitzgibbons was very disapproving of all the uh, sports equipment that Chuck has because uh, uh, God hates fun and priests are not allowed to have it. 
a recurring theme. Chuck's old college buddy then enters the scene from out of nowhere, points at Chuck, and then they start singing their school song again. That's Father Timothy O'Dowd. Father Timothy O'Dowd, who uh, looks like a sidekick if there ever was one. Yes. They finish, and Chuck introduces Fitzgibbons to his friend, Father Timothy O'Dowd. Timmy enthusiastically shakes Fitzgibbons' hand and says he stopped by to see if Chuck was free to play some golf. Father Fitzgibbons, radiating disapproval, informs him that they have very little time for games of golf and such like at St. Dominic's. He's almost like tilting his head back so he can literally like look down his nose mm. while he's saying this. While he's bragging about how much he hates fun. And also bragging about the fact that his church might be more serious than other churches. Yep. Timmy responds to that by saying, lucky for me, I'm at St. Francis then, and bursts into laughter. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. Fitzgibbons is constantly scowling and disapproving of things they do, but it never seems to bother either of them. They always just laugh it off and like, oh, you old curmudgeon. Ha ha ha. They understand that they're from different generations that have a, a different vision of what the church looks like and what they want to do with faith and leading the the flock so yeah they don't let themselves be bothered by it yeah i i guess they're all equal in the hierarchy i just assumed since he's older he would have more authority and that they would be uh, more deferential to his opinions but they they give no shits through the entire movie yeah well we also get to know why they give no shits in this scene they invite uh, father fitzgibbons to come with them but he says that a golf course is nothing but a pool room moved outdoors mm. which gets another uh, unintended laugh Father Fitzgibbons is then called away by the maid to deal with the latest complaint from Mrs. Quimp. This is an almost daily occurrence in this church. And as soon as he's gone, uh, Timmy asks Chuck if Fitzgibbons knows that the bishop has put Chuck in charge at St. Dominic's. Chuck tells him that he's keeping it a secret because Fitzgibbons is old and he doesn't want to hurt his feelings. So he's in charge, but he's not in charge. Fitzgibbons then comes back out and tells Chuck that Quimp is being thrown out by her landlord again, and could he go down and try to intervene? We follow Chuck to Mrs. Quimp's, and as he climbs the stairs to her door, she bursts out screaming and swinging a broom at the son of the businessman from the opening. She isn't going to be forced out, and she'll pay when she has the money. She's just screaming at the top of her lungs, uh, swinging at this guy. Chuck greets the son, who informs him that since uh, Mrs. Quimp refused to pay rent, the loan company refuses to offer her any further hospitality. Chuck requests that uh, he give her one more month to make a payment, and if she can't, St. Dominic's will will make the payment for her. The son laughs and says that St. Dominic's is in even worse financial shape than Mrs. Quimp is. His father owns the mortgage and is looking to foreclose so he can build a parking lot there. Uh, His father is pretty hated around these parts, and he's following in his footsteps. And then the scene ends, which is a real weird place for it to end because they did not resolve anything. And it just ends with him going, my father, everyone hates my father, and they're going to hate me too. Yeah, that also never really gets resolved. Like, we never really see anybody paying for Mrs. Quimp. Nope, not important. Swipe cut to Chuck walking back to the church and witnessing a gang of boys stealing turkeys from the back of a truck parked in an alley. 
The leader of the boys, Tony, suggests that they cut through the churchyard as they make their escape, and the camera follows them. Uh, it's a group of a good, like, 12 to 20 boys yeah. taking turkeys off the back of the truck, and then Tony says, let's cut through the, the church courtyard. But And then it goes to the courtyard, but it's just Tony and his uh, sidekick. Yeah. Because they're the only ones who actually have any uh, individual personality in that group. The two boys instantly run to Father Fitzgibbons and have to pretend that they came to give him the turkey, uh, claiming that they won it in a raffle. It's just, it's a whole ass turkey. It's, it's, it's huge. It's huge. They're holding it upside down by its feet, and then when they run into Father Fitzgibbons, they turn it upright, at which point we find out it's still alive. Yeah, I already thought it was dead until that point. Yeah, it's hanging completely limp when yeah. they're holding it by its legs, I guess. <laughs> when you hold a turkey like that, they just know there's nothing they can do, and <laughs> they give up. Uh, but they then they hand it to Father Fitzgibbons right side up, and it, it wakes up and starts freaking out, and they have to take it back from him. He is <laughs> not as strong as a turkey anymore. Fade to the maid pouring gravy over a freshly cooked turkey and then bringing it out to the table where Fitzgibbons is complaining to Chuck about his handling of the quimp situation. I wanted you to counsel her, not adopt her. And then the maid sets the turkey down on the table and there's this incredibly weird interaction where Chuck says, ooh, hot turkey. And then the maid goes, well, of course it's hot. And then Chuck goes, yeah, that's what I said. What? What? <laughs> what? I, yeah, I didn't understand that joke. What? Is it a joke? I don't know. Neither one of them seems. It just seems like the kind of weird, awkward interaction that happens in real life. Maybe it's an ad lib line. I don't. It was so bizarre. Hot turkey. Of course it's hot. Yeah, that's what I said. Pause for applause. I, <laughs> pause for laughter. What? What are we doing here? What the fuck? They start eating, and Chuck asks if he knows a boy named C Tony Scaponi is his name. Tony Scaponi. Tony Scaponi. There's a lot of, like, really cartoonish names in this. I mean, they're all either Irish or Italian. Yeah. Uh, Fitzgibbon says he does. A finer boy you'll not find anywhere in the parish. Comes from a fine, upstanding Catholic family with 11 children. Uh, Chuck responds that the police don't share uh, his view of Tony and that if he doesn't change soon, he'll be sent to a reform school. Fitzgibbon says it must be Officer McCarthy saying such nonsense and that McCarthy hasn't been to mass for over a decade, so he, he's on God's shit list and who cares what he says. The boys in the parish are angels. Why, the very food they're now eating was supplied by Tony Scaponi himself. On cue, the doorbell rings and Chuck answers it. It's Officer McCarthy with Tony and his sidekick, there to talk about the stolen turkey. Chuck tells the officer he'll handle it, and once the officer leaves, uh, he asks the boys if they'd like to go to a baseball game with him on Saturday. It's clearly not what they expected, but they cautiously agree, and Chuck returns to the table. Fitzgibbons asks what the police accuse Tony of. Stealing turkeys, says Chuck. <laughs> Slow look down at his plate from Father Fitzgibbons. Long silence. Did they get the turkeys back? All but one, Father. Another long silence. And then slow fade to black. <laughs> yeah, well, it was too late. They had already cut the turkey. It's just... 
everything takes so goddamn long in this movie. They just draw it out so much that any sort of shock or humor that could have been had from the scene is just is lost because he d- we know the whole time they're eating a stolen turkey and I go through this scene quickly in my synopsis cuz nothing happens but I'm leaving out so much tertiary dialogue yeah. in all these scenes they uh they can never just say something they always have to talk for like 5 minutes first and get the the slowest possible way and then this slow agonizing reveal that they're eating stolen turkey and then the the slow look down at the plate and then the long stretched out silence and then the did they get all the turkeys back oh he doesn't say it that slowly all but one father and then another slow, drawn-out silence where there's no there's no punchline to it. There's no... It's... Ugh. I took it as like a, a slow burn on Father Fitzgibbon. Like, yeah, but, he's, we're clearly made to make fun of him. Yeah, but there's no, like... There's no snappy comment or sarcastic quip or there's just we just sit in this this awkward dawning realization and there's no comment on it. It's just slow and awful. All right. We fade back into Chuck playing piano by an open window that looks out on the courtyard. Uh, Officer McCarthy passes by the open window accompanied by a young woman and asks if Chuck is open for business. Always, says Chuck. Officer McCarthy and the woman come inside, and after a laboriously drawn-out explanation where you like, well, I got a call from uh, Mrs. Quimp, who told me that there was a, a, a woman, a young woman who was up to no good. So I went out to investigate, and I found the young woman, and I, I thought she was uh, prostituting herself. He doesn't say prostituting, but he implies it. Uh, he found her on the corner of the street, yes. which is suggest- <laughs> suggestive enough. Yeah, and so I, wa- I walks up to her, thinking that, uh, not in my neighborhood, see, but I can immediately see that my, uh, my first impression was wrong. So I ask her what she's out there for. And I get the story from her and just goes on and on and on and on and on like this. Jesus, fuck. Just say she ran away from home. (laughs) Christ on a cracker. (laughs) Why do we have to talk about everything for 10 minutes? I hate it. Uh, We find out finally that the girl has run away from home because her parents don't understand her and she doesn't know anyone in town. Uh, the officer doesn't know what to do with her, so he's passing the problem on to Chuck. That seems to be a, a common theme in this community where anything the police don't know how to do, uh, it's your problem. Yeah, let's go to the church. Pass it on to the church. They're a, a secondary like uh, law enforcement in yeah. this community. They they handle the, the lower level complaints. Good luck with it, deuces, says Officer McCarthy. Chuck then talks to the young woman, whose name is Carol. Her complaint is that her parents don't like the way she dresses and make her have a curfew and other petty complaints. And she can't bring her uh, boyfriends home to visit because her grandma sleeps on the couch, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. All just very petty complaints yeah. about her parents, whom she also doesn't seem to understand why they're doing it. So it's just 
It's ridiculous nonsense. The kind of complaints uh, perhaps the elderly would expect teenagers to have. Yeah. She's 18 and old enough to be on her own, damn it. Uh, Chuck says he thought his parents were dumb too when he was 18, but when he turned 21, he was amazed at how much they learned in three years. Mm. And this is this is really where it starts to become apparent that this movie is made for people in their like early 80s because all the opinions it holds are of old people of how they view the world. And yeah, all their their dumb of shallow thinking where you just get to that age where you you're tired of actually critically thinking or maybe you could never do it in the first place and so you just start trading in these really shallow shallow platitudes and everyone just becomes these caricatures and you because you don't actually want to think about anything well it's not just 80 year olds thinking or logic but it's also like very religious views on what the world should be yes old and conservative where uh yeah this very rigid where people aren't people people are the category that they are so young people are always naive and uh don't plan well and have these petty complaints and all this all that kind of nonsense she tells him she's going to support herself by being a singer and he asks if she's any good of course i am she smiles cheerfully what makes you think so he asks well i just am that's all Damn, young people never have a plan. She has the just the biggest eyes and the biggest smile. She looks like a, a blabbering idiot, honestly. She looks like a cutie doll. Yeah. She has very, very pronounced smile. He asks her to prove it and steps over to the piano. Uh, she performs her song, and Chuck's critique is that she moves her hands too much. Which, to be honest, she does. There's no need for all that hand movement. And needs to put more feeling into her words. You've caught the virus. <laughs> you are now old. <laughs> she Me? Mo- yeah, she moves her hand too much. She does. There's no There's no need for her to move her hands that, that much while she's singing. You're, the hands do not help. You're too far gone. There's no saving you. <laughs> uh, and she needs to put more feeling in, into the words like this. And then Chuck sing, sings. And uh, he has a very... That's how he sings. Yeah, it's a very deep voice. Compared to her uh, uh, chipper, like Broadway style. After he finishes, he has her try, and they start singing a duet, at which point Father Fitzgibbon slowly shuffles down the staircase in the next room and glares at all this sinful happiness that's going on. He hates it. Uh, Churches are for misery and suffering. Get the shit out of here. Chuck introduces Carol to Father Fitzgibbons and says she's looking for work, and Fitzgibbons says he could get her a job as a housekeeper, but she declines. He then tells her to go back home because being a wife and mother should be good enough for her. Uh, Carol, understanding she'll get no help from this miserable old misogynist, says her goodbyes at that point, and Chuck gives her $10 on her way out to tide her over until she finds work and tells her to keep in touch. Yep, Fitzgibbons comes in and tells her that uh, singing is a sin and uh, it's no place for a young girl like her and uh, to go home and start popping out babies like a good... uh, catholic woman should like i said opinions that belong to a church 
In the basement of the church, the gang of boys that stole the turkeys shuffle around and poke at things. Tony's sidekick gets up and wants to know why they're all there for, and Tony says because he promised Chuck they would be, and Chuck's a right guy, see? Tony has a, a cartoonish uh, New Jersey accent. Yes. Yes. Uh, took us all to the ball game, didn't he? Bought us all hot dogs, didn't he? He's going to take us to the movie. Yeah, going to take us to the picture show. Oh, yes, the picture show. Yeah, he, his accent is so thick that they don't call him father, they call him Fada. Mm. Fada. Mm -hmm. Fada took us to the picture show, see? But how do we know, says the sidekick. Uh, Tony grabs him and raises a fist, but Chuck appears at the back of the crowd and the fist turns into a wave. Say hello to Fada, fellas, says Tony. <laughs> Before Chuck can tell them uh, what he brought them for, Tony takes him aside and tells him that he got all the boys to come, but if the father steps out of line, they'll drop him like a hot potato. It just, And, of course, it's a much longer talk than that. Yes. But just if it is that, uh, you know, this church shit is lame, and he only got them to agree to it because he was nice and took them all to a baseball game, but he's still on thin ice. Yes. So... And that he better, um, you know, better keep his words. You better keep being the, the cool youth minister or yeah. we're out of here. And uh, Chuck is wearing like a baseball jersey and mm -hmm. baseball cap. So he, he's in his cool youth minister outfit. He only wears that outfit when he's talking to the boys. Oh, not and not a jersey. He's got a, a a baseball vest, like the the kind of vest that you see in high school. Uh, in high schools, like when you see the the Vars football, the varsity, varsity yeah, uh, his vars athletes varsity yeah. jacket. Yeah. Uh, they move back to the game, and Chuck comes right out and tells them that uh, he brought them all there because he wants to start a choir. Fuck! Reply all the boys. <laughs> yeah, they are not into it. Chuck assures them that it will be fun, though, and if they don't like it, they can quit any time. Chuck asks uh, who there knows three blind mice, and after some prodding, they all raise their hands, except for Tony's sidekick, who goes up the stairs and out into the courtyard. Tony sees him trying to escape and follows him up and gets him to go back down by slapping him into submission. The... His sidekick keeps raising all these, like, I, I don't know how to sing, and any time he tries to say something... Tony just like three stooges like slaps him a bunch in the face by just like flopping his hand back and forth yes. and just like get back down there and like but I don't have a bass voice what do you mean you don't have a bass voice and he slaps him some more and he got that uh, child actor got some real slaps in his face yeah at one point he, oh my head my head stop and yeah all the other boys are like I'd say in the nine to, to 12 range but yeah. to tony is his sidekick could be like they could probably be around 15 yeah 16. 15 16 they're, they're the two leaders of the gang because they're yeah. the oldest and tallest uh, so he uh yeah slaps him until he agrees to go back down we're then treated to the scene of father fitzgibbing uh walking by the bush that chuck, chuck jumped over near the beginning of the movie this is why you need to remember audience for this scene and he pauses as he walks by the bush that Chuck jumped over and tries to lift his leg high enough to see if he could get over it. He fails. And this is the scene where I started just comparing this movie to Casablanca. Just just think about the scene of the note disappearing in the rain and all the emotion mm -hmm. and the beauty of it. And then just cut to the scene of this old curmudgeonly fuck trying to lift his leg to jump over a bush 
how did we fall so far so fast? <laughs> Casablanca was only a year ago. I I don't know. In this scene, to me, this scene uh, brought me to Mary Poppins. And Father Fitzgibbon in that scene reminded me of the old banker at the end of Mary Poppins. Like the old movie, the one with Julie Andrews, not the one with Emily Blunt. The... Yeah, that scene at the end when the father goes to the bank and he's about to be fired. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know how else to explain it. I've never it. seen Mary Poppins, so... <gasps> I, can't... I already knew that, but... Yeah, I, <gasps> I can't help you out here. Yes. Yeah, for me, it was just the the contrast between these two movies. Just how how did we get here? You, why how did it get this bad in just one year it's, it's to, to fall so far so fast this yeah they 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 saw casablanca they know what a good movie is how did this win whatever the church man yeah then we see him kneeling at the altar and praying but his prayer is disrupted when the boys start singing three blind mice Cut to the maid pleading with Fitzgibbons to reconsider. If he feels he really needs to see the bishop tomorrow, Fitzgibbons cuts her off and says that he's a tolerant man, but three blind mice is where he draws the line. He's going to ask to have Chuck transferred. What is so bad about three blind mice? Is it just that he's making noise because the boys are singing? Yeah, it's not the usual routine. It's he, He's old and he doesn't like change. Yeah. That's the, the, the long and short of it. The maid pleads some more, telling Fitzgibbons that he's old and should relax and let Chuck shoulder more of the burden. But the boys pick that moment to start uh, with the mice thing again, and that's the last straw. He, he, they start singing, and he looks at the maid and shrugs in a you-see-what-I-mean kind of way, and then walks out to go see the bishop. I wonder if the maid knew that Chuck was coming uh, to be in charge of the church. And that's why she's trying to discourage him from going to the bishops. I could see it either way. I could see her being in on it. I could see her uh, being such a non-entity that uh, Chuck leaves her out of it. Yeah, it's never made explicit. They have uh, Chuck and the maid have moments alone, and they never really share any sort of understanding. So yeah. I would lean more towards that she's such a non-entity that Chuck's not involving her. Right. She's not part of the, the church hierarchical structure. She's just a contractor to clean the building. She se It seems like she lives there, though. Yeah. Although she has a wedding ring. I don't know. Then we get a scene of Chuck in the basement with the boys, separating them into different sections based on their pitch. This, of course, goes on for way too fucking long, like all scenes in this movie. Once finally sorted, they make a good harmony, and it's clear that they're all starting to warm up to the project. Chuck then leads the group in singing Silent Night, and at the end says that that's enough practice for the day, but the boys complain that they want to keep going. They're into it now. Cut to Fitzgibbons returning from his visit to the bishop. Uh, he's looking very glum, and he asks the maid to have Chuck meet him in his office. In the office, the two men sit in leather chairs near the fireplace, and Fitzgibbons tells Chuck he's been to see the bishop in hopes of having him transferred. Chuck rises from his chair and paces to the fireplace. I'm sorry you don't like me, father, he says. I don't dislike anyone, Fitzgibbons calmly replies. I just disagree with you. He says that the bishop congratulated him on his 45 years at St. Dominic's and spoke at length about what a fine young man Chuck is. Hearing him talk made Fitzgibbons realize that Chuck was intended to be his replacement. So when the bishop finished singing Chuck's praises and <clears throat> asked what he was there to talk about, 
Father Fitzgibbon said he was there to ask for Chuck to be made the head of St. Dominic's. The bishop complimented me, he says, on my ability to see the inevitable. Mm. Chuck says he's okay with continuing on as they have been, but Fitzgibbons insists he takes over and says he's going to lay down a bit before dinner. And he tries to show him, I guess, the financial accounting books Yes. for the church. Yeah. He goes, oh, let me go over the numbers with you if you're going to be in charge. And Chuck says, oh, that's fine. We don't need to do that now. We can do it later. Yeah. As he leaves the office, he pauses and asks Chuck if this is what the bishop had in mind before Chuck even arrived. And Chuck confirms that it was. That evening, Chuck sits by himself at the dinner table, and the maid comments that Fitzgibbons will probably be skipping dinner since he looked sick when he came back from talking to the bishop. Chuck asks her to go and check on him, and she goes upstairs only to come back down moments later in a panic because Fitzgibbons had packed up and left. He's gone, and I was kind of hoping that he'd be dead. <laughs> Aww, you're not very nice to Father Fitzgibbon. Yeah, because he sucks. <laughs> He turns around uh, towards the end of the movie. He's, you, I, I don't think I, I was hoping he was there. He would be there. I just thought that, yeah, that he was just gonna be gone, and and then uh, the other one would take over. He's got a shitty attitude, and he also talks super slowly. So he's a large part of the reason why all these scenes take so long. So I was hoping it would speed things up a bit, mm. but it wasn't to be. He's just run away. Chuck puts on his coat, and then we see him and Officer McCarthy standing in the rain while McCarthy uses a police phone that's just in a telephone pole to tell his fellow officers to be on the lookout for a runaway curmudgeon. He finishes the call and tells Chuck to go home and wait for word, and then we're back in the church where it's past midnight, and Chuck and the maid are both fighting exhaustion while they sit in the lobby waiting for the phone to ring. Then we're out in the rain again with McCarthy and Fitzgibbons, uh, who tells the officer he'd rather go in by himself if he doesn't mind. And they have a little argument about it. The officer says, like, well, I found you. I should be the one to bring in. And he says, well, I do a better job explaining it by myself. And it'd be embarrassing if you brought me in. And the, the officer, like, gives him a suggestion for uh, where to go next time he runs away. And then... Uh, Father Fitzgibbon's counters with suggesting that he should show up to church for the first time in 11 years. Mm. And that just makes the officer laugh. I love that he's keeping count. Mm. You know, he haven't been there for 11 years. Mm -hmm. Got nothing better to do. Father Fitzgibbon sheepishly enters the lobby and after an awkward silence uh, says that he's come back, but only temporarily until his plans are better formulated. He s says hello first. He's hello. And then tells him that uh, he won't be there long. He won't be any trouble. And Chuck can have his room and he'll even feed himself. And at that point he sneezes and Chuck and the maid usher him up the stairs against his protests and tell him they're going to bring him some food. Well, if you insist, I'll have just a small portion of everything, he says. He's doing that thing that <clears throat> uh, not just the elderly do, but they do a lot where they cause more problems by insisting that they're not going to be a problem. Yeah. Which is just adding an extra step to everything. That step being that you have to convince them to accept the, the help first. After Father Fitzgibbons finishes his meal in bed, Chuck comments that his skin is still cold from the rain and suggests they share some alcohol to warm up. Fitzgibbons directs him to his secret stash he keeps in the bookcase, and as the two share a drink, Fitzgibbons tells Chuck that the bottle was a gift from his mother in Ireland, whose picture hangs over the fireplace, and it's kept in a, a little music box yeah. that sings a lullaby. 
That sings the Irish lullaby. His mother is 90 years old now, and he hasn't seen her in 45 years. Damn. He's always planned to go back and see her once he got a few dollars ahead, but every time he saved up enough money, someone else needed it more. Then he asked Chuck to sing the lullaby from the music box. Chuck does, and Fitzgibbon slowly falls asleep. It's just uh, a very... Every song but one in this movie is very slow and, and plodding, and so this lullaby is the same. Well, it's like it's fitting, I think, for this uh, for this scene because he's trying to sing, he's trying to sing him to sleep. Yeah, he slings the he sings the old man to sleep, and yeah. th- he's still wearing his glasses, and they fall off, and he has to pick up the glasses and put them on the nightstand, and then slowly back out of the room, and then turn the light off, and then he gets to the door, and Fitzgibbon says good night. Oh, he was awake the whole time. I thought it was cute. It's something that reminds him of, you know, of his home in Ireland. So it, it was fitting to me. Yeah. This is the scene that drives home the fact that Fitzgibbons is a, a, more of a little kid yeah. than he's an adult. Where everyone has to take care of him and, like, manage him. And he has to be sung to sleep. And he puts up this uh, tough, grumpy exterior. But he, you know, he just wants to be loved. Also, that he's not just uh, a priest; he's a person too. Yep, there's a, a soul somewhere in there underneath yes. all the dogma. Next scene, we see Chuck and Tony's gang of boys coming out of a theater. Uh, Chuck loads the boys onto a bus and then walks back to the church alone. But on his way, runs into an old friend who we've never seen before, Jenny. She just pops out of a door yeah. that he's walking by. Oh, Chuck! Out of nowhere. She pulls him into the door she popped out of, and they walk through the backstage of the Metropolitan, and Jenny reveals that she's playing the lead in Carmen. She brings him into her dressing room and uh, gets ready for her performance in the back. It's uh, a two-room dressing room, so yes. he gets left in the the lobby room, and she goes into the, the back, the Holy of Holies, and, and gets ready. We kind of understand that there was a, a potentially a romantic past between the two in the scene. Yeah, she's she is from the the first second very enthusiastic about seeing him again and excited and oh, it's so good to see you again, Chuck. I, I yes. missed you so much. Why did you stop writing? Yeah, I was thinking they started. They were writing each other letters. She mentions all the letters that she got in different places around the world, and and all of a sudden the letters stopped. Yep. Is there a reason? Yeah, she asks why he stopped writing to her. He t- uh, he says that he told her why in his last letter, but that must have been the one she didn't get. She says she got his letters in Rome, Naples, Vienna, Budapest. But then she went to South America, and there were no more letters. At that point, she opens the door and sees him in his priest garb for the first time because he had on a, a coat over it yes. for the movie, so she didn't know until that point. Uh, Father Chuck, she says with a smile. It'll take her some time to get used to that. After a bit more small talk, Chuck takes his leave, but Jenny insists that he stay and watch the performance from the wings. And then we just get a random three minutes of Carmen dropped into this movie. Yeah, but that's the most famous song of Carmen. Sure, but why? And she's singing it in French. Yeah, it's a good performance, but but why? (laughs) Why Why did we just get a random three minutes of Carmen in the middle of this religious movie for old people? Is Carmen popular with old people? Is that why this happened? It's a classic musical, yeah. Okay, it's popular with old people. That's why it happened. 
right, after the Carmen performance, we're back in the courtyard of the church where Mrs. Quimp has arrived to snitch on Carol, the young singer who has taken up residence in the apartment right across from her and is getting visits from a young man far too often. Mm. Of all the things God hates, sex is near the top of the list. So Chuck is dispatched to shame the young couple about their happiness. Uh, Fitzgibbon says that Father Chuck is more familiar with Carol, so this is an issue he should handle. Yeah, he's more familiar with the case. Yeah, with the case. Yeah. Yeah. Fade to Carol's apartment, where she sits at a piano singing while the son of the businessman sits on the couch enjoying the show. Chuck then enters the tranquil scene and slowly inspects the apartment as he, uh, his silent disapproval gets louder and louder. He just walks around, uh-huh, I see, yes. Well, because they have a bunch of stuff. Like, they, she has a couch, she has some armchairs, there's coffee table, there's a big-ass piano, there's a fully furnished kitchen, there is a coffee station, there is a table, a dining, well, maybe not dining, it's not big, but there's at least a... Yeah, a little dining table for two. There's a balcony. There's you know, there's a bedroom and all that. It's well furnished and well kept for somebody who didn't have any money when she moved to New York. Yeah. This has the air of like a military inspection almost where you can tell he's like looking for something to complain about. Mm. And then they know what's up because uh, before he even says anything, they go, now it's not what you think. <laughs> yeah oh isn't it and then they they sit down for the explanation Uh, and the explanation is this Uh, junior saw her walking down the street and cat called her and she told him off his his line to to try and pick her up is hey good looking what's cooking yeah and he tells chuck that the other line he could have used was who do you know that i know and chuck says that's worse i don't that doesn't seem worse to me. I'm not I'm not sure what the answer is to who do you know that I know because uh-huh. I knew the end to the hey good looking what's cooking but I don't know if there's a punchline to What's the punchline for what's cooking? What's cooking is the punchline. It's okay. the hey good looking what's cooking. Yeah, the other one doesn't rhyme, it's not as snappy. He went with the better line. Uh, she told him off and then came back to her apartment expecting to be thrown out since she had no money. How'd she get the apartment in the first place? $10? Yes. I guess. I mean, rent at that time in New York might not be as ex- <laughs> wouldn't be as expensive as today. But when the knock she was expecting came, the landlord turned out to be Junior. Naturally, he couldn't just throw a, a girl like her out on the street, so they so he got her a job and allowed her to stay while she saves money for rent. At this point, Chuck goes, oh, like Mrs. Quimp. And Junior goes, yes. Well, no, no, that's different. Hey, yeah, Chuck, I don't want to bone Mrs. Quimp. That's gross. Don't mm. be disgusting. <laughs> I don't want a, a quim quimp's quim. Uh, uh, gross, father. Gross. <laughs> Uh, at that point, Chuck gets out of his seat and searches for something else to disapprove of and settles on the piano. Very expensive, isn't it? Yeah. Junior deflects by saying he heard Chuck can play, and Chuck sits down to perform. They ask how uh, he got so good at playing piano, and he reveals that he used to write music in school. But then he faced a great decision. Would he write the nation's songs, or, as he puts it, go my way? They ask if he has any regrets, and he says no. 
He gets joy out of showing people that religion doesn't have to be somber and unpleasant, that it can be fun and joyful. And he demonstrates on the piano. He says, well, religion doesn't have to be like this. And he plays the, the lower range keys. And then I he goes, wonder. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. It can be like this. And then he plays, you know, a, a higher tone. I wonder if this is, if there's a reaction to, if there was a lack of attendance in churches at that time and that's a movie that's supposed to encourage people to go back to the church and show them that it's uh, it can be yeah it it doesn't have to be what they expect it to be and that it can be more fun than they thought or than they knew i wonder if that's a a reaction to maybe yeah a lack of attendance or maybe uh people not believing in believing in god as much as they used to because we're also in the middle we're close to the end of the second world war but i mean organized religion is always ready and willing and able to tell you how their numbers are declining and how they're oppressed and how you know uh, the world is more sinful than it's always been and and uh, the young people these days right and it's always getting worse yeah that's that's their whole bread and butter so i wouldn't be surprised They ask him to sing one of his original songs, and he proceeds to sing a slow, sappy song uh, that includes the lyrics, Going My Way. Carol sheds a tear, and Chuck says he'll leave the two with that. Then we see Father Timmy introducing uh, Jenny to Fitzgibbons, and Fitzgibbons making her buy raffle tickets after learning she's a a headliner in show business. Uh, Then Timmy and Jenny go to find Chuck, who's in the basement practicing with the boys. They perform another slow, miserable song for Jenny, who says it was lovely, and then the boys leave. Jenny asks Chuck if he still writes his own music, and he says that he does. In fact, Timmy is taking one of his songs to a friend who publishes music, and if it sells, it could be the answer to all their money troubles. Timmy then pulls a rejection letter out of his coat and hands it to Chuck. It was turned down because Schmaltz isn't selling this season. Then they all complained about popular music these days, just in case anyone was unsure who the target audience for this movie is. Jenny says she likes Chuck's song, even if it didn't sell, and asks him to autograph it. They complain about jazz. Yes. Uh, Vafola, but they call her Barfola. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they they complain about how oh, the music ain't the way it used to be and uh, all, all this garbage the kids are listening to nowadays and just, wow, this was made for jesus christ i mean who did you expect this movie to be made for i it's it's just weird the swings we have because sometimes the academy will pick things like casablanca that are actually really really good and then it just seems like when they're left to their own devices they just default back to having the opinions of 77 year old grandmothers (laughs) Yeah, I think really the only reason why I think this movie won Best Picture is because it's about religion and it's a feel-good movie. And it made the most money and yeah. it must have been a slow year for all of the movies, maybe you, due to the war going on. Yeah, you do not reject the Jesus juice. Yeah, yeah, just this, this scene about oh jazz and it has such uh shallow lyrics to it and he even makes a comment like can you imagine me making something like that daddy o'malley like Mm. it just all the people in this scene are young but you can just feel the elderly speaking through them like using them as a mouthpiece 
know if it's if I'm going to articulate this well enough, but I feel like people our age back in the like twenties, thirties, forties We are the elderly of the forties. <laughs> they had a different mindset also. They had a different life than we do, so Yeah. They were probably they had, yeah, they had a, a different outlook on what life is as well. They're in the middle of a, of a world war, even though it's not really they never, addressed. They never say anything about the war in this movie. Not a single word. Sort of. They at do? At the end. What do they say at the end? Ted Hines Jr. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Okay. Uh, Losing my mind. But my point is, yeah, I feel like people back in that time were adults or had a a more adult vision of life than people the same age nowadays. We definitely have a much more extended adolescence in modern times. Well, that also depends on country. Uh, Like I was raised in a, in a different continent, in a different country than America. And I feel like I was an adult way earlier than people become fully fledged adults here yeah if ever yeah cut to the businessman the senior businessman climbing the stairs to carol's apartment and knocking on her door she opens the door in her nightgown and papa business is uncomfortable with so much young boobage on display Mm. she opens the door and he goes oh 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 Uh, but he comes in anyway he inspects the apartment in a disapproving way very similar to chuck at which point Carol asks who he is. She let him in. Bef- without asking. W- yeah, without knowing who he is while she's in her nightgown. I want to have a talk with you. That's who, he replies. And he asks how old she is. She tells him she's 18 and he mutters, that's good at least. At, yeah, at least you're not underage. Uh, yeah, We're not in trouble. At least it's not a minor this time. Ugh. Uh, Junior then comes out in a bathrobe at that point, and he picks up Carol and swings her around. Without seeing his father. Yeah, and she, he stop, he's singing, and he's swinging her around, and then he stops, and she, she points behind him, and he looks. And I was expecting him to have an oh shit moment, but he's, yeah. he's completely unfazed. Yeah. Once he settles down, his father asks where he's been for the past two weeks, to which he replies, In a blue heaven, dancing on a pink cloud. Please stop calling my vagina a cloud, says Carol. Aww. <laughs> well, it, they've been having sex for two weeks. Sure. <laughs> That's, they're both in their skimpy outfits and uh, <laughs> they have a, that glow about them and they've been boning. Yes, of course. They, it's just the 40s and they can't say it. The production code is wagging its finger and saying, uh-uh, can't talk about sex. Yeah, you can... You can feel the the entire elderly audience uh, wagging their fingers in disapproval through this entire scene. Daddy Dollar Signs says that that's a lie. He had Junior followed, and Junior says that's not cool. Uh, he didn't have him followed when he was his age, and Carol laughs. They are just... His father is scowling and, and wagging his finger through this whole thing, and they just do not give a shit. They are just being sarcastic and, and, and happy, and they don't care. Yeah, that's another thing, like... He really reminds me of to, uh, of Anthony, not of Tony Kirby, because he's he has the same kind of humor. Yeah, it's the same big smile, same yeah. dark hair. 
same body shape. Yeah, very, very similar. Junior then explains that they're married now. I'll, I'll have it annulled, yells the father. And uh, Senior wants to know how they plan to pay pay their bills. Have they no shame? Has he no family pride? Nope, says Junior, lounging lazily against his bride. She's sitting on the couch and he's just laying against her in his robe at this point. Oh, yeah, because young Ted Hines has also quit his job. Yes. After some more bluster from Captain Cash, Junior uh, gets up and to finally get dressed and senior tells carol that he thinks he's a failure as a father carol is called back to help junior find his hat and dad sits on the couch silently talking to himself it's another weird scene kind of reminiscent of the turkey where he's just sitting there and he's mouthing words but you can't hear them and he's also gesticulating yeah as if he's trying to like silently form an argument or something or he has a an imaginary conversation with his son or with himself yeah it's weird that I'm a failure as a father. That also reminiscent of can't take it with you. Yeah, because that, uh, that's old the, Kirby says the same thing. Yeah, the exact same thing. Yeah. Is the exact same character type and look and same line. Yeah. Just, yeah, borrowing elements from it. Carol then comes back out and Senior tells her, This younger generation doesn't seem to have any sense. <laughs> it just... Who gives a shit about subtext? <laughs> yeah, and not even like you don't seem to have any sense. It's like this: your entire generation doesn't seem to have any sense. Carol comes back out, and Senior stares directly into the camera and screams, "Kids these days <laughs> don't understand." Yeah, it's just so on the nose. Just no. In case we didn't understand. Here's the thesis of this entire movie, yep. just plainly stated. Thank you, movie. I didn't get it. But then, right after he says this, Junior walks out in his military uniform. Yep. I guess I was wrong. Mm. Uh, he and Carol kiss goodbye. God bless you, whispers Carol. And Junior tells his dad to take care of her while he's gone. And then he walks out. This just, this, this. It was unsatisfying as hell. Like, just the whole thing. How do you not tell your family you're signing up for the military, you're going to go to war, and then all your father gets is, like, take care of her? Bye. It's just such a a clumsy uh, attempt at a twist. Like, oh, didn't expect that, did you? It feels like one of those, I, I don't know if you've ever encountered this because you don't hang out in the ghettos of the internet like I do, <laughs> but those ads, you know the ones where it's like, uh, one weird trick that doctors hate. There's another type where it's like, someone uh, yells at a homeless person, but they didn't know who was standing right behind them. Yeah. 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 And there's usually like a red circle around somebody. This feels like that. Yeah. You know I what I mean? Old man disapproves of the young sexy marriage, but he didn't know what his son's real job was. Like, it's that kind of hack writing that just, ugh. It sort of explains their attitude, though. Like, they don't have to be afraid or worried about the dad because 
A, they know that they're married. They know that he's got a job. And also, like, they have bigger things to be afraid of since he's going to war. So it at least explains their attitude. But yeah, it's just a, it's yeah, another trope. But doesn't explain why the second he walked in the door, they didn't just say, hey, I'm in the military. And they had to go through this whole fucking charade. To teach the old the old dad a lesson, I guess. To teach of the Arab. I didn't get that feeling from it. They just felt like they were being weird pervert goofballs. Yeah, that too. Yeah, I'd... well, it's if it's not for the dad in the in the scene, it's at least for the old and narrow-minded audience members. Yeah, you can just you can feel the collective elderly just gnashing their teeth and rending their garments. They don't have a plan. <laughs> How are you gonna pay your bills? Ah. Yep responsibility you don't get it uh from there we go to timmy who's calling another contact in the music business and forcing them to come down to the theater to hear chuck's song performed live four big wigs show up to the theater and hear jenny and the boys perform going my way and afterwards tell chuck that it's a nice song but not what they're looking for everyone is disappointed and they decide to sing another song to cheer themselves up the song they pick is called The Mule, mm -hmm. which is Swinging on a Star, yes. apparently, and goes like this. Would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, be better off than you are? Um, and then it goes, or you could live as, and then they give an animal, and the mm -hmm. first one is a mule, and then as soon as they give an an whatever animal it is, they cut to one of the kids who just, instead of singing, will just make a statement like, his back is brawny and his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And then the singing pack, uh, picks back up. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. Yep. And then they just go through different animals like that. Like there's a pig and a fish and what have you. And then the swinging on a star is just the chorus in yeah. between all those. To be surprised by your singing, it always surprised me that when you. <laughs> it always surprises you... me that you're not terrible. <laughs> no, it's not that it's it surprises me. It's just you you don't sing very often, so it's always a, a very nice surprise when you do. Thank you. Of course. Uh, the song finishes, and the bigwigs all jump out from behind a curtain. <laughs> they just. <laughs> They went back and hid just in case there was a second better song. Fuck you, movie. They heard the whole thing and they love it. Uh, here's my wallet. Take as much as you want. We have just gone completely off the rails into goofball nonsense at this point. Nothing can ever be quick or easy in this movie, though. So instead of just taking the money, they forced the bigwigs to attend that week's sermon and put the money in the collection plate. And yeah. this is a whole, like, five minute or more to do about this. They have a scene of them driving to the church. Mm -hmm. Then they have a scene of them in the church with part of Fitzgibbon's sermon and then the plate slowly being passed around. They even have this dumb joke about Timmy standing in the back and loudly putting, like, a single penny into the yes. box. It's just... Ugh. Uh, so they do that and they put all the money in the collection plate and then afterwards we see Father Fitzgibbons in his office counting his riches. 
Chuck and Timmy are there as well and ask for a half dollar so they can both get new golf balls to go golfing tomorrow. Fitzgibbons gives it to them and they pressure him into going to play golf with them. At the golf course, Fitzgibbons wanders around looking lost and asks what the rules of golf are again. And this is the point where I started going, why is this movie still going? Yeah, because clearly they have the money now. Yes, the plot is resolved. Why are we still going? Let's wrap it up. I was the the scene the first scene at the golf course starts with like a, a far off shot of just the three of them and you know it's, they're in between trees. Yeah, it's just it's just a scene of the setting. It's not focused on any individual character. You're not yeah. I thought, "Oh, this is just going to be it's showing this to demonstrate that Fitzgibbons has had a change of heart and we're going to slowly fade to ba- black and the end." But no. No, we've got another, like, 20 minutes of this movie left. They give him a turn hitting the ball, and after he hits it, Timmy grabs the ball and throws it in the hole, because he's it's in a little, like, dip, so you can't see the hole, and he hits it out of the hole, and then Timmy grabs it and puts it in. Yeah. Uh, you got it. You did it, father. You're a natural, they say. Then we're back in Fitzgibbon's office, watching Chuck and Fitzgibbons play checkers, and... We watch them play checkers. We just sit there and watch them play checkers. And this is the point where I started going from frustrated to angry. And just in my head being like, the end movie. The end. The end movie. (laughs) Why are we still here? The end. We have wrapped up every uh, plot point. The end. (laughs) We also discover in this uh, scene that Father Fitzgibbon really didn't know anything about fun or games because he doesn't really know how to play checkers. Oh, yeah. He plays like dog shit. Yeah. He's (laughs) counting on Timmy to uh, give him, you know, he's trying to point to some of his pieces and Timmy has like little, he nods or he says no with his head to indicate which piece he should move. So Father Fitzgibbon just has had absolutely no fun in his entire life. Yeah, Chuck wins the the slow, drawn-out checkers game, and Fitzgibbon says it's time for bed. As he gets up, Chuck suggests that now that the money troubles are over, he should go see his ancient mother. Before Fitzgibbons can agree, Timmy bursts into the room and says the church is on fire! Chuck and Fitzgibbons run out and watch all their hard work burn to the ground. Why? Yes. Uh, Yeah, when the church is on fire, like, no, no. The movie was over. What? No. Yeah, I was as devastated as they were about the church being on fire because it meant the movie was going to keep going. <laughs> uh, and then we fade to Father Fitzgibbons carrying a bucket of water to refill the birdbath fountain, which survived the blaze. Then we're back in his bedroom. He's in bed and Chuck is giving him medicine for nonspecific ailments. And they have a whole to do about, I don't want to take it. Well, I'll take it if you take it. And then he finally takes it because everything in this movie has to take 10 years to do. Fitzgibbon has lost all hope now that the church is gone. And Chuck tells him that the medicine was to calm his nerves for the big reveal. Jenny and the boys are on tour and the proceeds from it are going towards rebuilding the church. And he hands... Father Fitzgibbons, a check for the astronomical amount of $3,500. This will be enough to rebuild. I mean, at the time, yeah, that, yeah. that was it's a lot, in a lot money. of money. Like, if it's if you translate it to nowadays with inflation, it's probably close to like 60000 maybe even more. Cut to Fitzgibbons walking through the freshly built wooden frame of the new church. Chuck joins him. 
and says that the bishop is sending him away to his next assignment. Fitzgibbons is sad to see him go, and Chuck is sad to leave. Uh, we have a quick scene of Chuck saying goodbye to Tony, uh, making him promise to stay out of trouble, and gifting him the uh, varsity jacket. Next, he says goodbye to Carol uh, Jr., who has been discharged after being run over by a Jeep driven by a friend. Oh, yeah, I'm, I completely missed that. I thought he was injured uh, during the war. Yeah, he got run over by uh, <laughs> by someone on his own side, which is actually uh, a fact they told us uh, in the military. Like, the the first American casualty for uh, Operation Desert Storm, I believe, was a, a friendly getting run over by an American uh, vehicle. Yeah, but this is years before Desert Storm. Yeah, I know. So I'm just saying that <laughs> it, it was prophetic. Yeah. And senior there as well. It's just like all the characters just in a line so he can just say goodbye to them. Uh, conveniently all in the same place. Timmy comes in to see him off as well and discloses that he's Chuck's replacement. Then all the characters gather to hear Fitzgibbons give a send off to Chuck. And he says what a great guy he is and how they're all going to miss him, etc. Uh, the boys choir then begin to sing the lullaby from the music box. And surprise, Fitzgibbons' mother walks in. Yeah. And boy, does she look old. Like, there's movie old, and then there's real old. This lady's real old. Yeah, she looks like she would be close to 100. She, Yeah, she's the old where if you don't support them while they're walking, they're just going to collapse into a pile of bones and dust. There was one movie critic that wrote that the actress who plays Fitzgibbon's mother looked magnificent in mm. this movie. She's on screen for, like, less than a minute. She's on screen for less than 20 seconds. Yeah. Uh, so she walks in, uh, the two embrace as the, the lullaby is being continued to, to be sung, and Chuck walks out of the church and off into the moonlit, snow-covered courtyard on his way to his next assignment, the end. Fucking finally. I know. This movie was so long. And and I'll say that. It's like, it's not a bad movie. It's just, it's so slow and nothing happens. It's, yeah, so slow and plodding and just boring. It's just bone-achingly yeah. boring. That's why when it, it got that golf scene and kept going after the plot had been resolved, I, I was legitimately mad. Like, why are we still here? Just in the movie. <laughs> and yeah, everything just takes so long for them to say and it's not important or interesting when they finally get around to saying whatever they're gonna say and it's just all this this dumb shallow worldview that is for old people and it's just sappy and sentimental and schmaltzy and just ugh. Yeah. Casablanca won this award god damn it <laughs> Yeah, we have moved so far, so far away from that. Like, they know. The Academy knows what good art is. Do they, though? <sighs> Not always. Yeah, they, it, they have some surprising choices sometimes. I'm, be I'm beginning to suspect that the, the ones that they give the award to that are good are more accidental than, <laughs> than not. Yes. This seems to be the kind of thing that they actually enjoy. Yeah, I think, you know, this is, like I said, this is a movie mostly about the church and about values and all that. And I think it's, yeah, that's one thing that's, 
that can be attractive to uh, everybody is like this is this has the potential to be a a uniting movie i meant to bring that up when they were performing the uh, the mule song about how the 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 saving grace that solves the the church's problems is a song about how you need to behave yourself and be a good find upstanding citizen yes gross yeah ugh yeah, if you don't like going to school, you might end up being a mule. Yeah, it's you need to go to school and you need to like have good hygiene and take care of your appearance cuz otherwise you'll be a pig. Yeah. And uh be honest, I think is the one for the fish and yes. yeah, just all the <laughs> they stop short of saying follow the 10 commandments, but <laughs> heavily implied. Yes. What kind yeah. of animal do you turn into if you don't honor the Sabbath? <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, it gave me a lot of, I think I, I told you at the end of the, the movie, it gave me Mary Poppins vibes. Like it felt like Father O'Malley Father O'Malley was a, a Mary Poppins yeah, archetype. I, I, I definitely see that. He seems like the fixer. Yeah, like, he comes in, he's got his uh, his methods, they're unconventional. He ended uh, ends up fixing all the problems, and then he's got to go on his next assignment. Yeah, he never never really argues with anyone about his methods. Yeah. He just sticks to going his way. And he's then, got a good few songs in the middle of all this. Yep, he knows a jaunty tune. He knows uh, he always knows how to handle every situation perfectly, and how to to massage egos and how to to work around ignorance. And he turned things around with the kids. Yep can appeal to the youth yeah can uh, disapprove when he needs to can be the cool youth pastor when he needs to he can whatever hat he needs to wear he's also respectful to father fitzgibbon honestly because he knows that he was gonna he was put in charge of the church and comes in but he doesn't want to ruffle any feathers yeah it's he is sent to St. Dominic's under the pretense of fixing their financial situation, but what he really does is uh, restore Father Fitzgibbons's passion and faith yeah. and hope. And then he moves on to his next assignment once Fitzgibbons has those things restored. Yeah, there's just a lot of things that are, to me, not closed they don't have a there's no closure like uh, mrs quimp and her rent money we don't really know anything about jenny and chuck and their past it's it's suggested but we don't we don't know exactly what she's clearly very infatuated with him in a romantic way but yeah he's a, a father so we don't know why or how he became a father he became a, a a priest. Yeah, it's it's Fitzgibbons who asked him twice in the beginning why he became a priest, and I'm guessing his explanation is that explanation he gives to Carol. But you'd think since Fitzgibbons is the one who asked, Fitzgibbons would be the one who gets the explanation. Yeah. But he doesn't. I'm just assuming that that when he was talking to to Carol and and junior about how he wants religion to be fun and he had that choice about writing the nation songs or uh, going his way that was his reason for becoming a preacher yeah i feel like there could also be an explanation of he clearly sees something in the boys too i feel like it there's a past i'm completely writing this in my in my head but a good explanation would have been you know i was 
a kid on the streets and I was abandoned or I had no family and the church saved me. I myself was once a, a young uh, gangster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A, a young a young member of the Three Stooges. Yeah, I feel that could have been a, a reasonable, satisfying explanation. Been saved by by the church and now wants to give back. My old turkey stealing days. Mm. I've pinched a gobbler or two myself. Ugh. So where's it going on your list? It is going at number 15, I believe. <laughs> That's where I put it. Out of what? 17? Out of 17, yeah. I put it under Grand Hotel and before Cimarron. Like I said, not a bad movie necessarily, just very slow. And yeah, didn't really have a specific message to me. It's Father Chuck comes comes in, does what he needs to do, he leaves. So I, there's at least closure in that. But yeah, I, I have I haven't been this bored watching a movie in a long time. Yeah, I disagree with your assertion that it's not a bad movie. I think <laughs> it is a bad movie. I think it is painfully boring. Painfully boring with with hack writing and schmaltz and slow sappy sentimental music and no interesting characters, no interesting visuals. There's just this movie was a slog. I think the thing for me is that I think it has good intentions behind it. Uh, the the path to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> that means nothing to me. Uh, Where do you think you're going to put it on your list? Um, Underneath you can't take it with you because at least you can't take it with you had entertaining moments yeah. for as, as insultingly dumb as it was. At least... The house exploded and Mr. Kirby got body slammed into the ground and there was that creepy walrus mask and you know, there's something to grab onto and to remember. Like, I'm not going to remember a single line from this movie the second we stop recording this episode. It's already evaporating out of my brain because there was nothing. There's yeah. nothing to hold on to. Yeah. Ugh. Terrible. So number 14 out of 17 for you? Yeah, and do not let the the length of my synopsis fool you. I cut so much out because there's so much unnecessary dialogue in this movie. Yeah. Just every scene is just stuffed to the gills with superfluous words that add nothing to the plot or to motivations or to character or anything. It's, this is just a movie of watching people have long roundabout conversations about uninteresting topics yeah and in a way there's something that you didn't necessarily mention but at the the end of the movie the church and father fitzgibbon are back where they started because father chuck says oh uh, mr hines will give you a loan for for the church and so he's back where it all started he's gonna get the loan they're back in debt again yeah they're back in debt again because apparently a church that has no debts is not a church but father fitzgibbons is out of spiritual debt <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh garbage again i think we also see that from our perspective for nowadays and neither of us is religious so the all the jesus talk and all that stuff doesn't work on us 
but for 1944 it was probably a very impactful movie because of how more religious people were at the time yeah it was really popular apparently yeah. it was a really really popular movie that makes sense but also we learned from casablanca that you can make pieces of art that are timeless oh absolutely so i don't disagree with that no i don't disagree with that i just think that there are movies that are <laughs> time pieces and that work for a specific audience and then like this one and then movies like casablanca that are yeah that are timeless maybe that's the one ray of hope in all this that the the super religious movie is not as popular nowadays uh, yeah. does not play as well yeah ah maybe we it is a happy ending after all <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen any super religious movies. In I mean, the last... they still exist. They just get released yeah. directly into to streaming and go into the, you know. In a very specific category of their own. Yep. Sink to the depths and the, the people that want that kind of stuff can get it. But it, it's certainly never going to get like a, a large theatrical release and, yeah. or win Best Picture. They're just hidden in the depth of the internet and you really got to be looking for them if you want them, uh, want to watch them. Yeah, you got to go find the weird Jesus ghettos. <laughs> go find the, the man hanging out in a, a dark alley. Hey man, you want some of the Lord? <laughs> I got some primo shit. I know what you're after. <laughs> uh, what's our next movie? The next movie is called The Lost Weekend. The Lost Weekend. What do you think this one's going to be about? Uh, a drug-fueled rampage. That's why The Weekend is lost. They can't remember it. In 1945? Yes. Drug-fueled rampage? I can dream, can I? <laughs> I guess you can. I can't take that away from you. <laughs> Just let me have it. I will let you have it. I, I guess this could be yeah, a story about... Ooh, I could see maybe a first movie about the mafia. There's some gambling involved. Maybe not drugs, but alcohol. I don't know. Something like that. Something where there's a clear goal at the beginning and then obstacles after obstacles after obstacles and then we make it to the end of the movie and to, to that goal within the next two and a half hours of our time yeah i'm i'm fine with it being anything so long as it's not a, a thinly veiled excuse for the elderly to wag their fingers at us and force us to listen to their uh slow uh out of touch music we did have to yeah slow out of touch music there was also the silent night yep. in that movie and there was also the that's ave maria that's why it's a christmas movie they sing silent night and there's an ave maria yeah and snow yeah. at the end yeah i guess we'll get the answer to our hypotheses next week yep at least we never have to watch this one again never never <laughs> pinky promise not if it was the last movie left on earth a sequel. A sequel, you say? Yeah. Does Tim? Does Father Timmy come back? Does Jenny come back? Timmy. Timmy. I don't know. I didn't look it up. But oh, I mean, cast Father O'Malley. Ingrid Sis, Bergman. Ingrid. Ingrid Bergman. Oh no. Ingrid Bergman. Oh no. Who was, uh, Ilsa I know. in Casablanca. Oh, that's terrible. Crosby. I'm sure Father Fitzgibbons doesn't come back, right? There's a nun. Ooh. Yeah, that's Ingrid Bergman. She plays Sister Benedict. Mm, I bet uh, Father O'Malley gets all up in her habit. Mm. 
Dr. McKay, Mrs. Bree. I'm not seeing. What happened to Timmy? Yeah, no Timmy and no Father Fitzgibbon. Uh, it doesn't look like Jenny's in there either. Nope. They all died in a car crash. Well, this is a different church. <laughs> yeah. He's at St. Mary now, so. Yep. He's the only constant. Yeah. He's the uh, religious man with no name. Anything else to say? Not that I can think of. Alrighty. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Oh, and since this episode will be coming out next week on to uh, on Monday night or t- Tuesday morning, happy holidays, everybody! I'm yeah. not gonna say Merry Christmas or because well, <laughs> because not, but happy holidays. Happy holidays. Yes. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and happy New Year. Yep. All right. Till next time. Bye, everybody. Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.